the guys asked me to do tonight uh, what's really a seminar. I, of course, would love to do exposition, but they've asked me to do this, and I'm delighted to do so. Um, really developing the idea that we started with this morning and dealing with the issue of what is the mission of missions, uh, and what is the mission of the church, what is the mission of missions, really comes down to the same thing in the end. There's some handouts uh, going around. If you didn't get one when you came in, I think they ran out, uh, just pop your hand up and the guys will go ahead and pass uh, pass one or two of those out to you. Because it is more of a seminar kind of situation, and I have to move through the points very quickly so that we'll be done before midnight, uh, I thought a little handout would help you so you can at least track with each of the main points. If you want more information on this subject, you can go to our church website, um, gracefellowship.co.za, and under .za, sorry, wrong continent. Uh, and you can go there, and, and under the resources page, uh, there's some, a lot of material there, and one of them is a full exposition of this issue that we're going to touch tonight. So, what is the mission of missions, or kind of the, the, the conflict that's going on in the church today between what might be called proclamation missions and what is called social action missions? And so, our purpose tonight is really to develop the implications of what we saw in the book of Acts this morning. And the fourth point of that sermon, which was the missions program of the Church of Antioch. Tonight, we want to give a little more biblical shape to that and interact with some of the issues around that. Let me give you a very simple principle as we begin. It's uh, there in your little notes that I handed out to you. Um, here's a little saying that I've used that's helpful to some people. People ask, what is missions? They say, missions is very simply your ecclesiology, which means your view of the church, your ecclesiology armed with a passport. It's just taking what you do here at Mission Road Bible Church and taking it somewhere else. Ecclesiology just refers to the theology of the church, your biblical view of the church. Missions is just taking your biblical view of the church and reduplicating that in another place. And as I said this morning, we're not talking about exporting Americanity, as we might call it. We're not talking about the external and the peripheral, trivial things like the PowerPoint and the music and that sort of stuff. This is about identifying what is essential, what is critical, what is at the heart of the church, what Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, commanded us to do, commanded us to focus on. Out of a love for sinners and out of a love for our Lord, we take that, the essential content, and transfer that somewhere else to the benefit of others. And that's what missions is about. It's your ecclesiology armed with a passport because you're just trying to do the same thing somewhere else. And so, before you give a missionary a passport and put him on a plane, send him off to a far land, you need to determine what your biblical view of the church is and what the church is to be and to do. And then you make sure that that drives what your missionary is doing in some other place. And there's tremendous confusion about that today in the church in America and evangelical circles around the world generally. And so, let's see if we can address this issue a little bit tonight. According to God's Word, what should missions be, meaning what should a church like Mission Road Bible Church be and do, and therefore what should its missionaries do? Evangelical missions today are changing. I think that's just a given. Evangelical missions today are changing. In the past, the majority of theologically conservative missionaries were sent out to do things like church planning, leadership training, Bible translation, the things we talked about this morning. That's no longer true. Today, a growing percentage of new missionaries are being sent out to focus on social relief. The church and the gospel are kind of tacked on as something of a theological addendum, but we're going to go dig wells in Africa or build a playground in Haiti or that sort of thing. In fact, in my 20 years in Africa, I've seen a major shift in evangelical missions away from what I would call Book of Acts kind of missions towards a social reform approach to missions, social projects, social action missions. Now, that's no surprise. The influential voices dominating the evangelical conversation about missions today are, in fact, promoting a new kind of missions. They call it shalom. They call it social justice. They call it the gospel of good deeds or human flourishing. It goes under different names. In the end, it all comes down to a very similar thing. And it appears that the new generation, the so-called young, restless, and reformed guys, that generation has bought in. And they and many churches everywhere are embracing social upliftment as central to mission strategy. 
Most of the resulting missionaries value the church and they value the gospel. That's certainly true. But in many cases, they seem to view the church as primarily a platform from which to run their favorite social relief program. Now, I don't want authority over anyone else's missions program and don't have that authority, but I do think we need to come under the authority of the Scripture. And as we do that, let me make this suggestion to you. I would suggest that the New Testament apostles, the men whom Jesus Christ trained and appointed, the men whom He instructed, whom He taught, those men are the Christ-instructed, Christ-enlightened interpreters of His great commission. The commission that He gave as you're going into all the world, make disciples, the men who are the God-inspired interpreters of that commission would be the men whom Jesus Himself trained. Does that make sense to you? We should go to those men to know what Jesus meant when He said, as you're going into all the world, make disciples. And therefore, before we radically revise our practice of missions, I think we need to consider how the apostles defined and enacted Jesus' commission to reach the world. The men whom he trained should know how to do it. In short, then, I believe that the book of Acts and its commentaries, the New Testament epistles, should rigorously and definitively shape our approach to missions. Now, you might argue they're not quite, the book of Acts is not quite prescriptive, but I would argue that it's more than descriptive. There is an authority here that we need to submit to. And so, how did those Christ-appointed men, the founders of the church, according to Ephesians 2, verse 20, how did they interpret Jesus' great commission? What they did in the book of Acts should lay out the lane markers for us. We know the lanes we need to run in if we are going to do what Christ commanded us to do. Now, the current tug of war between what I would call proclamation-oriented missions and social action missions, that kind of, you know, soup kitchen versus pro proclaiming and preaching, that kind of tug of war is not a new issue. Now, that's not a new thing. It's been going on for hundreds of years. However, in recent years, key voices in evangelicalism have enthusiastically promoted social action, social justice kind of missions. And that would include prominent evangelicals like John Stott and Tim Keller and many others. In fact, John Stott has for decades been urging the church to make social action and evangelism 50-50 equal partners in all missions efforts, in the fulfilling of the Great Commission. He wants them to be equal partners. Years ago, Stott wrote this, they're like two blades of a pair of scissors or two wings of the same bird. This partnership, says Stott, is clearly seen in the public ministry of Jesus, who not only preached the gospel, but also fed the hungry and healed the sick, unquote. More recently, Tim Keller has played a key role in promoting social action, Peter Naylor, in his chapter in the book Engaging with Keller, sums up Keller's view very helpfully. He says this, Keller's main thesis is that the church has a twofold mission in the world. Number one, to preach the gospel, and number two, to do justice, which involves social and cultural transformation and renewal, unquote. Now, it's a dicey line that Stott and Keller have drawn for the church of Jesus Christ to walk. We're going to keep the gospel the main thing, and they would certainly say that. We're going to keep the gospel the main thing and focus the church on social reformation. And in fact, in a sense, they would argue social action is the gospel too. Now, in theory, it's a noble blend of word and deed, as the terminology usually goes. Naturally, however, the further one pushes, the closer one gets to the place where, the, the further you push in this, the closer you get to the place where social involvement ceases to be distinctly Christian, and you don't have to be a believer in Jesus Christ to build a school or dig a well. It ceases eventually to be distinctly Christian and maybe even starts to supplant that which is distinctly Christian. 
Now, in the 1990s, John Stott acknowledged the danger of this dual emphasis. He said, the main fear of my critics seems to be that missionaries will be sidetracked. And I appreciate him summarizing my whole seminar in one <laughs> sentence. Um, that's exactly the fear. Then missionaries will get sidetracked. I believe that fear is a perfectly valid one, and it has been repeatedly proven to be a valid fear. Today, in fact, I would argue that many churches and missions committees barely seem aware of the distinction between missionaries who focus on social action and missionaries who focus on Bible translation, theological training, church planning, gospel proclamation, and so on. Now, as I survey today's shift towards social action kind of missions, my concerns about that fall into three main categories, and they're there in that little handout. You can look at them. Three main categories of concern. Concern number one would be this. We'll pose them in questions. Question number one is, are we ignoring the lessons of history? As we go around this track again, are we walking in the footsteps of previous generations of the church? And the answer is, well, yes, we are. In fact, if you study the history of this kind of issue, you'd find that in the late 1800s, in the late 1800s, conservative evangelicals in the United Kingdom and the United States enthusiastically threw themselves into social reform projects of all kinds. And they did that in response to the very real needs created by rapid industrialization, urbanization, slums, and all that sort of thing, all the things that typified that area, that era, rather. Church projects in the 1800s, this all is going to sound very familiar, included everything from employment bureaus to daycare to summer homes for tenement children and food kitchens, the same things. However, interestingly, as you study that movement, evangelicals' enthusiasm for social reform gradually evaporated in the opening three decades of the 1900s. By 1930, in what church historians have called the Great Reversal, Conservative evangelicals abandoned, on the whole, or severely curtailed their social action projects. And they did so, in, some, in summary, for two reasons, distortion and distraction. And I'll develop both of those with us for a moment, or in a moment. Distortion and distraction. Doctrinally speaking, on the distortion side, what they found is that social action missions, you know, orphanages, hospitals, all that sort of thing, too often acted like water. It acted like water because it ran downhill and ended up in a murky theological swamp called the social gospel. Now, the social gospel is a distortion of the true gospel in which social upliftment, giving people better education, better housing, clean water, and all that, right? all those good things in and of themselves, the social gospel is a distortion of the true gospel in which social upliftment gradually trumps the gospel of salvation from sins. And then secondly, evangelicals in the early 1900s also discovered that social reform had become an intoxicating, all-consuming distraction. In theory, the soup kitchen was never supposed to replace the cross. But in practice, churches found that the gospel consistently slipped into second place. Because the social programs required so much time, so much attention, so much energy, and so much money. The evangelist D.L. Moody in that era often warned churches of that problem. His favorite line was this. He said, when Christians go to the world with a loaf of bread in one hand and a Bible in the other hand, they'll usually find that sinners will take the loaf of bread and leave the Bible. Which, by the way is exactly what Jesus found in John 6 when He fed the thousands. When He fed the 5,000 there, what did they want? They wanted more food. They didn't want more gospel. And Jesus' way of handling that was not to back up the trucks, call the bakery, we need more bread here, bring in the trucks, bring in the bread. Of course, He didn't have to do that. But the solution was not more bread. You remember John 6. Jesus' solution was a decisive, clear gospel presentation, apparently intentionally designed to chase off the indifferent. In short, I think as we look at the history of this issue, we're on an oval track, and we're going around the same track again that we did 100 years ago. 
We've been around this track before, and I really wonder if we need to learn all the same lessons again. Historically, where social action missions leads is this. In 1900, in the year 1900, mainline Protestant churches in the United States supplied 80% of the missionaries who were sent out from North America. Well, that's in the year 1900. 80% of the missionaries sent out by North American churches came from conservative, Bible-believing, mainline kind of churches. Over time, as those churches became more liberal and therefore started to focus more and more on social action and less on the Word of God and the gospel, what we found is the number of the missionaries that they sent out steadily decreased. In fact, in the year 2000, those very same social action-focused churches supplied 6%, from 80% down to 6% of North America's missionary force. You see, although it often involves a temporary upsurge, a temporary spike on the graph as everyone's excited about Peace Corps kind of missions, the truth is, historically, Making social reform an equal partner with evangelism and theological training, it doesn't enliven missions, it kills it. You see, in the long haul, only the Word of God and only the true gospel can keep churches motivated for the sacrifice necessary for missions. Social relief projects, so they'll cause a momentary spike on the graph, but they can never keep it going long term because what Christians are excited about is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Word of God. And so, that's my first concern. It's a historical concern. I wonder if we're ignoring the lessons of history, and the answer is, well, yes, we are. My second concern regarding the shift that we're seeing today in missions is this. As we pour ever-increasing resources into social reform and health care and that kind of stuff, you know, clean water, wells, and all that sort of thing, my question is, is the church's true work, the thing that only the church of Jesus Christ can and will do, is that work being unintentionally, rarely is it intentionally, but is that true work of the church being unintentionally ignored, unintentionally neglected? Now, all evangelicals that deserve the name are committed to keeping the gospel and the Word of God and the church the main thing. They're committed to that. However, in practice, that's very difficult to do once you start to embrace social action, social relief missions. Social relief projects are like black holes. Their gravitational pull sucks up all the resources available and always clamors for more. There have been estimates that over $5 trillion of Western aid has gone into Africa. And when you go there, you wonder where it's gone, right? It's just disappeared into the sand. Social relief projects are like black holes. They demand more and more and more. While the theory states that gospel proclamation is the main thing, in regard to budgets... Planning, staff numbers, time, effort, and so on, what's actually first is all too clear. All too clear. If the money being given into those kind of projects went into, went into Bible translation, church planning, and leadership training, we would have a different church in Africa, I can tell you that. I could give you endless illustrations of this sort of thing. Let me give you one from a friend of mine, uh, uh, Brian Biedebach. He pastored in Johannesburg. He's a graduate of the Master Seminary. Uh, served in Malawi for a number of years, and now he's uh, coming back to the States to minister here. Uh, he writes this about his attempt at a social action mission project when he was a young man. He said, I spent a year working on a holistic project in Malawi in 1997 and 98. He said, I was responsible for the oversight of 26 Bible college students. So he's supposed to disciple and lead those kind of young men. I was responsible for the oversight of 26 Bible college students, 50 goats, 400 chickens, and a large agricultural garden. And so the idea was that Brian would help these guys learn how to farm, right? He's from Seal Beach in California. He didn't know anything about farming, to be honest. But he's going to help these guys learn how to farm and disciple them as he does so. It sounds like a wonderful plan. 
Brian says, when I woke up in the morning, my first thought in my mind was getting the eggs to market. All through the day, I was consumed with making sure that water was being pumped, that animals were being fed, and in the middle of the night, I was awake chasing away chicken thieves and wild dogs. (laughs) You see, whatever the theory, the practical realities of running an agricultural plot meant that Brian had little or no time for teaching and discipling those Bible college students that he was supposed to be training. And in fact, in social action missions, distraction is the norm, not the exception. Uh, I have a friend who uh, is a great pastor. They sent a, uh, a, a church planning missionary to, to uh, I think it was the Dominican Republic, one of the, uh, one of the Caribbean islands. And he went and visited him a couple of years later, and, and, you know, he's in this village, supposed to plant a church, and, and there's health problems and so because of the bad water, and so, so they need a water purification plant. And then, well, there's no education for the kids. How are they going to get ahead? And so they had to start a, you know, a, a, a Christian school, and, and uh, I forget there was one other thing that was a part of it. I can't remember what there was a third thing. that. And this friend of mine was there for a week, and he said, in the course of that week, this missionary that we sent there did not spend even one hour, not even one hour in church planting work. There had been a part that had broken for the water purification plant, so they had to get that ordered, and it's from the United States, and they have to get permission from the government to continue to run that, because you have health codes and all that sort of thing, and they needed a third grade teacher, and so he was on the phone in the States and the internet, all trying to recruit, and they had to get get permissions from the Department of Education in order to continue to run the school. The guy spent his whole week doing that, and at the end of the week, my friend sat down with him and said, you know what? Uh, we're going to sell the water purification plant to Coca-Cola because they have to get it to get in the country. They have to have something like that. We're going to hand the school off to someone else, and you're going to go back to doing what we sent you here to do. And it was a great relief for the missionary, in fact. That's normal. Social action missions inevitably devours the whole pie. Even Tim Keller, who is an advocate of this sort of thing, admits the problem. He writes this, quote, Churches that try to take on all the levels of doing justice often find that the work of community renewal and social justice overwhelms the work of preaching, teaching, and maturing the congregation. And he's talking even in your local church in America, not in missions. Now, in response to that, uh, again, Peter Naylor, who, who evaluates this part of Keller in the book, uh, um, Engaging with Keller, He offers this insightful evaluation of that statement. He says, Tim Keller speaks as if there is a certain point where this becomes problematic. But he does not demonstrate how this effect is not already in operation the moment the church becomes involved in this kind of work at all, unquote. See, Naylor's point is, well, distraction starts immediately. As resources are fed into the maw of social justice, social action projects, by default, essential ministries, what I would call Book of Acts missions, are underfed and begin to starve. The displacement of the gospel and of preaching is usually completely unintentional. But when you put social action on the front of the wagon, something has to fall off the back of the wagon. There's not enough room for all the boxes. To describe it in mathematical problems, which is always a dangerous thing for a guy like me who can't add two and two and get five, right? <laughs> the, to, add, to describe it in a mathematical way, we would say this. The social gospel has the problem of subtraction. It subtracts essential theology, sin and repentance, the cross. It subtracts that from the gospel message. Social reform projects that are more evangelical, they threaten the church in a different way, by addition. When resource-consuming social projects are added to the church's agenda, those resources can't be used for proclamation ministries. You see, the money you use to build a playground can't be used to support a church planter. It just can't. It's a zero-sum game, if you're familiar with that terminology. What's given to one has to be taken from the other. There are not endless resources in the body of Jesus Christ in this local church. I mean, God has all He needs, 
But we don't have endless resources, and when we direct them to one thing, they can't go to another thing. It's just that simple. So, my concern under that second point is not only are we ignoring history, but perhaps there is a danger of malnourishing essential proclamation ministries. That which only the church of Jesus Christ can do and will do doesn't get done when we're doing things that unbelievers, frankly, can do just as well. Concern number three. Concern number three is this. My question about today's rapid shift towards social action missions is, is the whole underlying theory flawed? Because at this point, we've looked at history, which is not authoritative, and we've looked at pragmatics, which is important but is not authoritative. This question is, is the underlying theory flawed? Because our authority is the Word of God, right? And so, we got to go there and find out, is there a problem with the whole idea altogether? Are we busy redrawing the lane markers of missions without giving any regard to how the apostles, how the Christ-taught, Christ-trained, Christ-appointed interpreters of His Great Commission, how they did it? My answer is yes, I think we are ignoring what the apostles did. While Jesus did command people to love their neighbors, believers in Jesus Christ are certainly to love our neighbors. I don't see in the New Testament that the apostles' missions program outreach to the world included resource-consuming social action projects directed at the world, directed at unbelievers. Uh, we saw this morning how the church of Antioch helped the church in Jerusalem right, by sending them financial aid when there was a famine. That money didn't go to Jerusalem generally. That went to the church. And so, I don't see that the church of Jesus Christ in the New Testament gave attention to these resource-consuming social action projects directed at the world. Now, to highlight this concern, let me lay out for you eight biblical problems. And we don't have time to look at all the texts, or we will be here till midnight. But let me just walk through these quickly for you, and I'm delighted to answer any questions you have afterwards. Eight biblical problems with the social action model of missions. Now, not all of those who are involved in these different things have all these problems. Well, of course not, right? But I have to paint with a broad brush just for the sake of time, so I hope you understand that. Problem number one. Problem number one with some of these uh, social action missions things is a redefinition of the gospel. There has been a subtle redefinition of the gospel, and you can see this on the social justice websites and the guys who are all talking about that sort of thing out there in the blogosphere. A redefinition of the gospel. Social justice advocates often describe the gospel in terms of human flourishing. That's a favorite term, human flourishing. They would argue that the incarnation, Jesus coming, God the Son coming in human flesh, was about the bringing of shalom. It sounds cooler if you use a Hebrew word, right? Shalom just means peace or general well-being in Hebrew. The incarnation was about bringing shalom or general well-being to the human race. And therefore, they say, any Christian effort that increases human flourishing of any kind, you know, increased salary, increased education, increased health, whatever, any efforts that increases human flourishing is gospel ministry. That is very clearly a subtle or not even subtle redefinition of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is an intentional move away from sin and forgiveness. You guys are studying Romans together on Sunday mornings. I don't have to explain this to you. It's an intentional move away from sin and forgiveness and the cross of Christ to social upliftment. D.A. Carson helpfully points out that this redefinition of the gospel is categorically and disastrously wrong. He writes this, the gospel is the good news of what God has done, not a description of what Christians ought to do in consequence. You get the distinction? The gospel is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. The gospel is not what I do to help my neighbor. They are both lovely things, but one is not the other. 
Carson says, one cannot too forcefully insist on the distinction between the gospel and its entailments, the gospel and what you do because you're a Christian. That's very important to understand. In other words, digging a well is not the gospel because the gospel is what God has done through His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. That's the gospel. The gospel is not what you and I might do. How did we ever forget that, right? Furthermore, to represent the gospel of Jesus Christ as being about general upliftment of unbelieving society is to misrepresent the gospel. John MacArthur writes this in his book, The Vanishing Conscience, quote, I recently mentioned to a friend that I was working on a book dealing with sin and our culture's declining moral climate. A friend immediately said, well, be sure that you urge Christians to get actively involved in reclaiming society. The main problem, said this guy, is that Christians have not acquired enough influence in politics and art and the entertainment industry to turn things around for good. MacArthur says, that I acknowledge is a common view held by many Christians, but I'm afraid I don't agree. God's purpose in this world and the church's only legitimate commission is the proclamation of the message of sin and the salvation of individuals, unquote. And again, you're studying the book of Romans. I don't need to spell that out for you. And so the first problem with some social action missions efforts is that they have cleverly, not all, but some, they have cleverly but deceptively redefined the gospel. And their redefinition of the gospel is, frankly, a heretical gospel. It's a gospel of works. It's a gospel of human effort, of human doing, rather than God alone through Christ alone. The gospel is not about social upliftment. It's about the God of the universe slaughtering His Son so that we might have our sins forgiven. That redefinition of the social gospel is a redefinition we can never accept we cannot embrace. Problem number two. Again, I have to move through these quickly. Problem number two, I'm going to use this little theological term here, an overly realized eschatology. And if you're not in seminary, you're going, what in the world is that? Eschatology, of course, is in times. You know that. has to do with in times. And so basically it means this. We want the kingdom, the millennial kingdom, we want it now. We want all the benefits of Jesus Christ ruling and reigning directly here on this earth, everything He's going to fix at His return. We want that now. It says if all those promises about Christ's return need to be fulfilled now in this world. That's what overly realized eschatology means. Wanting the kingdom now. This idealistic desire to bring the kingdom now, it's a version of post-millennialism, really, if you know the terms, it often plays a role in social action vision of missions. You see, the social action advocates would argue that Jesus Christ came to banish the results of the fall, and, well, that's true as far as it goes. And therefore, they would argue that kingdom work, they like that term, kingdom work includes anything that diminishes or reverses the results of the fall and promotes the general betterment of society. However, again, to orient the church towards general societal improvement attempts to create a transformation that only Jesus Christ's return can ultimately bring. We can't bring that in no matter how hard we try. I call it a common grace approach to the Great Commission. If we can just get everybody better education, better health care, cleaner water, then they'll go to hell happy, right? That's kind of a harsh way to say it, but you get the point. It's a common grace approach, as if the Great Commission is about common grace rather than the specific grace of repentance and sins forgiven. That's a thoroughly inadequate understanding of Jesus' Great Commission. Biblically speaking, a person participates in the blessing of Christ's kingdom by believing in the King. Problem number three. Problem number three is what I would call an inexplicable, an inexplicable preference for indirect gospel ministry over direct gospel ministry, and I'll explain what I mean by that. 
an odd, inexplicable preference for indirect gospel ministry. Now, the reality is in most social action missions projects, the actual direct gospel ministry, where you're sitting down with someone and explaining the Word of God to them, preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, teaching them the, all that Jesus commanded, things that we talked about this morning in Acts, right? In social action missions, the actual direct gospel ministry is quite limited. If you send out a church planter, his whole day is involved with that. He studies the Word of God to prepare his sermons. He preaches. He counsels people. He evangelizes. That's what he does. That's direct gospel ministry. But in social action missions, most gospel ministry is indirect and, in fact, usually is just a hope for byproduct. We're going to dig this well, and maybe someone will ask us why. But maybe they won't, and all we'll have in the end is a well, which is a lovely thing to have, but doesn't save your soul. For example, my friend Brian Biedebach, who I mentioned earlier, did his doctrinal dissertation in this subject by, by uh, interviewing uh, hundreds of missionaries in Malawi. And what he discovered is that 40% of the Western missionaries in Malawi, the conservative kind of evangelicals, right, 40% of them are school teachers. Now, school teachers are a wonderful thing. I love school teachers, and they are wonderful, and if you're a school teacher, you have my full and delighted support. But the truth is, a school teacher has to spend most of her day doing what? Well, teaching handwriting, mathematics, and, you know, stuff like that. Of course she does that. That's what she's supposed to do. The gospel ministry she does is, in fact, quite limited by the nature of what she does. Same thing with a medical doctor or someone like that. They're supposed to do their job, right? Whereas a church planter gives all of his time and attention to direct gospel ministry. Now, based on the book of Acts and just what we saw this morning in Acts 14, for example, I would argue that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not an addendum. It is not a hoped-for byproduct of missions. The gospel is the mission. It is up front. It is direct. It is there. It's in your face. This is what we do, and this is what we're about. Uh, that's how the apostles did it. Now, you might need to take a little more indirect approach if you're going into an Islamic country where Christians need to get secular employment to get into the country. I understand that. Right? However, there's no need to adopt regularly indirect strategies when we're reaching open countries, which is a large percentage of the countries on the globe. Often lurking behind this preference for expensive, roundabout, indirect gospel ministry is the notion, and you'll see this again in the blogs and the books, is the notion that, well, we must first portray the gospel before we can preach the gospel. And we portray the love of Christ by doing these other things, which are all wonderful things, right? We portray the love of Christ, and only then we can preach the gospel. Do you find any basis for that in the book of Acts or the epistles? I don't. Paul showed up in town, and maybe he did a miracle to justify why they should listen to him. I am sent by God. And, you know, when you raise somebody from the, time, from the dead, well, it's time to listen to that guy, right? You're going to give him five minutes of your time to listen. Paul would do that, but he doesn't go and start an orphanage in Pisidian Antioch or Lystrum or Iconia. He just went and preached the gospel. Why did he do that? Well, because that's what missions is. The Apostle Paul did not say in 1 Corinthians that God was pleased to save sinners through the foolishness of the gospel mercied. He said it was through the foolishness of the gospel preached. And there's no reason why we can't just go in and preach in open countries. That's what missions is about. After noting that Studies have shown that Christians, and this is a pretty broad Christian in its kind of broadest terms, that Christians in America spend nearly five times more money on poverty relief than they do on evangelism and church planting. Right? Uh, there's a lot of stuff that says, oh, we have to redress the imbalance. Uh, yeah, there's an imbalance, but it's not where we think it is. Christians spend five times as much money on poverty relief than on evangelism and church planning. Noting that, again, D.A. Carson writes that the gospel is often the missing component in supposedly holistic gospel efforts. At one time, says Carson, holistic ministry, that's a catchphrase, was an expression intended to move Christians beyond proclamation to include deeds of mercy. 
Increasingly, however, Carson notes, the term holistic ministry refers to deeds of mercy without any proclamation of the gospel at all. And he writes, that's not holistic. In fact, he says, it's not even halfistic. It's not even halfistic since deeds of mercy are not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus Christ crucified and raised for sinners. He concludes, says Carson, judging by the distribution of American missions dollars, the biggest hole in the gospel is the gospel itself. Unquote. Missions efforts in which the preaching of the word of God and the proclamation of the gospel are an afterthought or a hope for byproduct bear no resemblance to the missions efforts of the men that Jesus trained. No resemblance at all. Although they were surrounded by social ills, ills that are equally as bad, easily the equal of what we see anywhere in the world today, the early church intentionally focused on direct gospel ministry. I think there's a lesson there. That was the apostles' inspired interpretation of Jesus' teaching. Problem number four. Problem number four. After the issue of indirect versus direct gospel ministry and which would you want to put your money into, problem number four is what we'll call the new pragmatism. The new pragmatism. John MacArthur has written this. He says, one of the key problems of the evangelical church in our era, era is, quote, a spiraling loss of confidence in the power of the Scripture. And he's absolutely right. And so we do the dog and pony show of the church growth movement and all that stuff because people won't come just to hear the Bible. You got to entertain them in the door and then do this bait and switch thing to keep them interested. Well, that very same approach is seen in the social action movement. First of all, social action is safe. Nobody's against orphan care. I mean, not me, not you, not anybody, right? Even unbelievers like that. They don't like your gospel preaching, but they love orphan care, and well, of course, they should. And so social action is very safe for Christians in an environment in the United States where it's starting to get unsafe to be a Christian, and it's going to get more and more like that. It allows churches to be very active and to be accepted by the world, as if that were important. The logic is this. Once our social relief program makes unbelievers like us and pat us on the back and tell us what fine fellows we are, then we can nudge them towards Christ. You know, once they come to church because we got a Starbucks and a bowling alley, then we can try to slip the gospel inside. It's the same approach. It's the same approach. It's the new pragmatism. The gospel needs a lead-in because the gospel will never succeed by itself. That is a spiraling loss of confidence in the Word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the dangers of that new pragmatism, that kind of thinking, are the same dangers that have always been involved in pragmatism. The gospel is always demoted to second place. The medium, what you're doing to try to draw people in, actually becomes the message. The entertainment in the church growth setting becomes the message. That's in the end what it's all about. Well, the social action activities become the message. Let me illustrate. The following description of a social action church plant in the Baltimore, Maryland area comes from a book on mission written by graduates of Westminster Seminary, and they wrote this book as a festrift, a, a book in honor of their missions professor, right? uh, Harvey Kahn, who taught for many years at Westminster. So this is a major conservative evangelical seminary, and this is a book written to honor their missions professor. And this quote, which I'm going to read for you, fully represents the book. I'm not just picking out the one weird part. Right? And it provides what I would argue is a rather barefaced example of doubting the power of the gospel and the medium social reform becoming the message in the place of Jesus Christ crucified for sinners. Here's the quote. The author says, without holistic faith, there is no gospel in Sandtown, which is an area in Baltimore. Living out the gospel in this context has meant building a collaborative network of church and community-based institutions. I mean, does that even sound like the New Testament? Building a collaborative network of church and community-based institutions that focus on housing, job development, education, and health care. 
In 2001, the author writes, the full-time staff numbered over 80. Seeking the shalom of Sandtown means a concentrated effort to eliminate vacant and substandard housing, a K-8 school, a job placement center that links over 100 residents a year to employment, and family health center. The author concludes, simply preaching the gospel would have failed, unquote. According to that author, the gospel in Sandtown includes housing reform, job development, quality education, health care, all which are wonderful things in and of themselves. But in fact, it would appear to me that the only thing that the gospel does not include in Sandtown is Jesus Christ and Him crucified for sinners. And I'm not misrepresenting that chapter. Christ and Him crucified basically is not mentioned. It's just not even on the radar. Jesus as Savior from substandard housing and unemployment is highly visible in that model. Jesus as Savior from sin and hell is nowhere to be found. And to be quite honest, isn't even necessary for most of what is being done. Unbelievers in the government can do that sort of thing. You don't have to be a Christian in a church to have an unemployment program. The medium, social reform, has become the message. What if we put 80 church planters in Sandtown? Do you think the gospel would have worked? Oh, I think it would have. I can no way reconcile that lack of confidence in the Word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can no way reconcile that philosophy of missions that that represents with the efforts of the apostles in the book of Acts who just kept on preaching the Word of God, the Word of God, the Word of God. They lived in a world that had all those same problems, and what they did is preach Christ crucified. In the end, the new pragmatism, the gospel needs a lead-in, a social reform lead-in, leads you very far away from book of Acts kind of missions. Problem number five, defective hermeneutics. Defective hermeneutics. That just means Bible interpretation, right? Defective Bible interpretation. The arguments used to promote social action missions are often based on transparently deficient Bible interpretation. And the result is arguments that when you first read them or hear them are very compelling on a rhetorical level. They tug your emotional heartstrings and all of that. But they are, in fact, biblically suspect. For example... And I could give dozens of examples, but this is just an easy one. I often find that passages in the New Testament that are about mercy efforts within the church, we saw one this morning, the church in Antioch helping the church in Jerusalem, right? Mercy efforts within the church, 1 Timothy 5, where Paul says the church of certain widows there to care for widows who are over 60 and the qualifications that are given there. Mercy efforts within the church are interpreted and applied as if they referred to mission, social action, mission projects outside of the church directed at the world. We got apples and oranges, and apples are being used to prove oranges' arguments. A typical example would be the widow care in Acts chapter 6. The church set up the, the, the men who were um, the seven men, you might call them deacons, whatever you want to call them, right, who are appointed to take care of the feeding of the widows and all that sort of thing. There it is. See, we must start social relief programs. Can I just point out to you that the men appointed in Acts chapter 6 were ministers to the church. They were not missionaries to the world. It was the widows in the church who were being cared for in the organized effort of the church. Now, we'll talk about how as individual Christians we serve those around us. Uh, that's certainly a part of being an, a believer in Jesus Christ. But the church's missions efforts were not social reformation projects directed at the world. And the Bible is often interpreted in that way, and that would just be one illustration of the deficient hermeneutics or Bible interpretation that you often find driving this movement. Passages about ministry inside the church are interpreted and applied as if they referred to missions to the world. That's a problem. Problem number six. Problem number six is confusing what the church corporate does with what individual Christians do. And if you haven't quite been agreeing with me yet tonight, this probably is the place where you're tripping up. So listen closely if you can here. 
There is often a confusion about what the church corporate is to do in its missions work and what individual Christians do because we're just Christians who love the people around us. Much of the confusion on this issue lies right here. We've confused Jesus' call to love our neighbor with the church corporate's call to go into the world and make disciples. Those are two very important things, and they are two different things. Both are important. They are not the same. It is not at all wrong for Christians to be involved in orphanages, healthcare, and so on. Those are wonderful things to do, and I'll tell you in a minute some of the things that people in my church do. But what individual Christians do just because they're Christians, and what the church corporate organizes itself to do as its missions projects are not the same. Now, let me give you an illustration. We have near our church in Pretoria a freeway. It's called the N1 Freeway. It's a large national freeway. And uh, it's a freeway. It's a very dangerous freeway. Uh, there are a lot of hijackings. If you break down, you're liable to have three guys with AK-47s jump out of the bushes and take your life and your car and whoever else is in the car with them. Right? Now, that sort of thing happens all the time on that freeway. Right? Now, as a Christian... I would gladly stop and help an injured motorist by the side of the road. I'm going to check out the bushes first to see if there's three guys with AKs waiting to jump out. But I would gladly stop just like the Good Samaritan did because that's what Christians do. We love our neighbor. We love our traditional enemies. We, we love people we don't even know. Uh, that's what Christians do. Does the story of the Good Samaritan, however, does that mean that Grace Fellowship Pretoria should put a line item in our church budget by which we purchase patrol vehicles, train staff in car repair and emergency medical things, and fund a freeway patrol program to help stranded motorists on the in-one freeway? I think to ask the question is to answer it. That's not what the church is about. It's fascinating that the story of the Good Samaritan gets used for a lot of things, but never to argue that you should start a freeway patrol program, which would be the most obvious direct application if you're going to go that direction. What a Christian does because he loves his neighbor and what the church corporate organizes itself to do as its missions program to reach the world are not the same thing. As I read the New Testament, church corporate's missions program focused entirely on proclamation, not on social reform or social action. So, that's problem number six, a confusion between what individual Christians do because we love our neighbor and what the church organizes itself to do in its missions outreach. Problem number seven, and I know I'm running way over time, so thanks for your forgiveness. Right, problem number seven, a misunderstanding of Jesus' ministry and miracles. This is a seventh problem, a misunderstanding of Jesus' ministry and Jesus' miracles. Those who want to do social action and gospel proclamation and have them be equal partners in our missions work often say, well, we're just imitating Jesus' ministry, which seems like a pretty compelling argument. And in Matthew 26, verse 9, and John 13, verse 29, we are told that there was a money bag and that Jesus and his disciples did use that to help the poor from time to time. It is, however, also clear, both from the Gospels and the book of Acts, it is clear that Jesus started no orphanages, established no poverty relief funds, didn't get into low-cost housing schemes, dug no wells, and so on. And neither did the men whom he trained and gave the Great Commission to. They did not understand Jesus' Great Commission in those terms. And they are the Christ-taught, Spirit-inspired interpreters of Matthew 28, verse 19, 18 through 20. You say, well, what about Jesus' miracles? You know, he healed the sick, he fed the hungry, he did all that. Well, doesn't that prove that the church should be working to eradicate hunger and disease? Well, interestingly, can you think of any passage in the New Testament that upholds the miracles of Jesus as motivation for the church to focus on social action? Can you think of any passage? Don't think long, because there aren't any. 
It's as if we think that the church is to continue Jesus' program of miraculous social relief by non-miraculous means. The Bible simply never points us that direction. In fact, Jesus repeatedly said that the purpose of his miracles was to prove that he was the Messiah. And the apostles did miracles to prove that they were Christ's men and that they had the authority and power of God behind them. As I said, you know, when you walk into town and you raise the dead, it's time to listen to the preacher, right? You're going to give them your attention. The miracles were never designed as a solve the world's social ills problem and problems. They just aren't used that way. And try to argue that we should imitate Jesus' ministry or the apostles in doing that is to misunderstand Jesus' miraculous ministry and the apostles as well. In fact, do you remember, Jesus frequently found that his preaching was hindered by the miracle seekers, by those who wanted social action, by those relentless demands for more and more social intervention. We want more bread. We want more health. As you remember, Jesus often instructed those whom he healed, don't tell anyone that I've healed you. Why did he say that? Because he didn't need more distraction. Jesus understood all too well that social relief swallows up the time and the energy that should be dedicated to evangelism, preaching, discipleship, and so on. Problem number eight. After misunderstanding Jesus' ministry and miracles, problem number eight is what I've been saying all along, a willful blindness to how the apostles fulfilled Jesus' great commission in the book of Acts. And these guys are the inspired interpreters of that commission. I think we need to walk in their footsteps. John Stott has written this about the great commission. He says, quote, not only the consequences of the commission, but the actual commission itself must be understood to include social as well as evangelistic responsibility. And so he's arguing when Jesus said, go in, as you're going into all the world, make disciples, he said, well, that actually means that you're supposed to be pursuing social reform. And it's a little hard to find that in the text. I won't go through his arguments and refute them. There's not time for that. In spite of Stott's assertion that social action is implied in the Great Commission, when you go back and read the passages... For example, Matthew 28, Luke 24, there is no mention of social action at all. It's Jesus died, Jesus rose for, the repent, for repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Jesus' commission focuses exclusively on evangelism and teaching. And in fact, if Jesus was giving the disciples a veiled instruction to make evangelism and social relief equal partners in their missions, then they didn't get the message. They failed to understand him. Because if you open the book of Acts, you find that what they did is they preached the gospel. For example, in Acts 10, verse 42, Peter sums up to the people there at Cornelius' house the Great Commission. He says this, Jesus ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge. See, whenever the apostles talked about Jesus' great commission, it was always repentance for the forgiveness of sins because Jesus is Savior and Lord. They never mention social action, never. And in fact, the book of Acts reveals that they fulfilled Christ's order to preach with an astonishing single-mindedness of purpose. Social action projects is a mean of generally uplifting the world, just nowhere to be found. It was not a lead-in to evangelism. They just preached Christ. This whole idea that it's two wings of the same bird, the preaching the gospel and the social action, is indefensible when you sit down with the book of Acts and read it. In the book of Acts, proclamation is a condor wing, and social action is a sparrow wing. And that's being kind because I can't even find any examples at all of social action outside the church, right? reaching out to the world. Everyone loved their neighbors, as all Christians do. That's just part of being a Christian. But the only church-organized relief projects mentioned in Acts and the epistles are actually within the church. So, if we allow the book of Acts to lay down the lane markers for our mission's efforts, then the truth is things like church planning, leadership training, Bible translation where it's necessary, that's going to be our focus that's how the men whom Jesus trained understood and applied and lived out the Great Commission. 
Now, as I've said, there's no doubt that Christians, the early Christians, that they showed concern for the needy unbelievers around them. And they met pressing needs, as Titus 3.14 says. They did good to all people, as Galatians 6.10 says. That's what Christians do simply because we're Christians. And again, just so you know, I would want to tell you that I encourage that sort of thing in our church, and we do a lot of that, the individuals in our church. People in my church are employed in orphanages, they teach Bible studies for orphans, they volunteer at a hospice, direct a school for underprivileged African farmers, minister in prison, sponsor theological training for needy African pastors, create a food, a, a tra- sorry, a food for trash, there we go, a food for trash program for street children, and a host of other things like that. Our church does not organize, drive, and fund that. They do that just because they're Christians. Because what Christians do is they love the people around them. What Christians do because they're Christians, and what the church does as its organized corporate missions program to reach the world are two different things. Now, since you guys are studying the book of Romans together, let me end with this. Let's consider for a moment how this worked out with Paul in the book of Romans. You don't have to turn there. I'll just summarize. How did this work out in the labors of the apostles? Let's consider the example of the apostle Paul's long-planned missionary trip to Rome. He has a long-planned mission to the city of Rome. Others had been there first with the gospel. There were churches there. Paul writes to them, but Paul still wants to go. Now, in Paul's day, what you need to understand is the city of Rome was a sprawling metropolis of over a million inhabitants, and its social woes were the equivalent of, and frankly, far worse than any modern city. So, what would the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans have looked like? What would it have read like if one of today's evangelical social action advocates had written that letter? What would it read like? I think it would read something like this. I can't wait to get to Rome to lead the charge of Christ-centered social justice. Deed must precede word. We need to proclaim Christ's love for the city by working to improve general civility, race relations, and the social conditions of Rome. We need to eradicate slavery. We need to eradicate poverty. We need to start orphanages. The people of Rome will not listen to the gospel unless we first help them flourish socially, educationally, and economically. But if the church organizes a series of community-based services to eradicate unemployment and to uplift the disadvantaged, then we'll see the city of Rome transformed. Of course, you know what Paul actually wrote. For my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. And in Romans, it's very clear that the gospel Paul's talking about is a gospel of sin, wrath, the cross, repentance, faith, forgiveness. That's the gospel. Paul was fully aware he was a city boy through and through. He was fully aware of the social conditions that prevailed in any large city in the Roman Empire. Nonetheless, Paul showed the same systematic disregard for social action missions that one finds in the book of Acts. Now, because of the varying gifts in the body of Christ, some missionaries will add more mercy and compassion components to their ministry than others. That's fine. Different believers have different gifts. That's just 1 Corinthians 12. That's basic. That's not the concern here. My concern is that we're allowing corporate social action missions, something we see no example of in the New Testament, to really take over our mission's efforts. At very best, it's disproportional to the book of Acts, In fact, it's hard to say that it reflects the book of Acts at all. And if I can just give you a perspective from someone who ministers in Africa, it would be this. You know, long after the AIDS orphans have grown up and the wells that are being dug are blocked with sand and the medical clinics have closed due to lack of Western funding, the people of Africa will still need churches to preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. They will still need churches long after all those other things are gone. And if we send out missionaries who primarily focus on the social action things, who will plant 
and who will pastor those churches. You see, the book of Acts focus, adds, or models for us a focused approach, doing what only the church of Jesus Christ can do. Unbelievers, NGOs, the United Nations, they don't preach the gospel. I don't know if you noticed that. They don't. They don't plant churches. Only Jesus Christ's people, the church, does that. And while the work of social action missions is emotionally rewarding for the missionaries and for the churches that send them, I fear that we'll wake up one day and realize that maybe we've not been helping the world in the most helpful way. Now, what can you do to correct the trend just in two statements? First, remind your current missionaries, whomever both as individuals and as a church you would support, that the proclamation ministry they're doing is the most important thing that can be done. They don't need to redirect their efforts based on trendy rhetoric and the fact that they know they'll get more support money if they're doing this other stuff. Stick to what the apostles did. It'll make Jesus happy. And secondly, when you're preparing to send out new missionaries, just sit down with the book of Acts open on your knees to determine your philosophy of missions, just like we did this morning. Because you need to know what the church is about. Missions is just your ecclesiology, your view of the church, a word-focused, gospel-focused group of believers. Missions is just your ecclesiology with a passport. That's all it is. And so it's no mystery, really, how the men whom Jesus himself trained understood and fulfilled the Great Commission that's the right way to do it. And so, let's just do Book of Acts missions, shall we?